Rita Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are diving into, digging into George Orwell's 1984. It's already it's hot. A, it's already getting hot in here. It's already, it's already hot in here. I'm surprised, honestly. Like, I didn't think there was... I Honestly, when I chose this book, as I've been reading it, I thought there's no way this is controversial in any way. That's the funny thing. So it sounds like we might have some things we need to work out just based on our conversations pre-show. Before we get into that, though. This is so fun. We need to... Uh, well, we could do a little preview of the book. I got to talk about some of the, the big picture stuff. But we have, I have a very important question for each of you. The book is called 1984. What were you doing in 1984? Oh, that's a good question. I wasn't born. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Because <laughs> then you can't, answer, you can't ask me the question. I don't remember because I was so young that <laughs> I can't possibly remember. It was pre-memory. I wasn't born yet. Yes, I was. I was born in 1979. Um, I don't know what I was doing in 1984, but I do remember overhearing adults having a conversation about it being 1984, having read this book. And I don't remember the content of the conversation. I just remember kind of a vague, like adults sitting around over dinner party talking about it being 1984. And there was a book called 1984. And I thought that was interesting. And I remember my mom um, asking me what I was doing. And I remember I said, roller skating. So I was definitely so you roller, were roller skating, skating in 1984. 1984. And I continue to roller skate today on occasion. So I was going to say, if I'd been alive, I definitely would have been roller skating because yes. since I was born, I've been roller skating. Mm-hmm. Tim, were you roller skating in 84? I probably was just past the roller skating age. I was whatever I was like a freshman or a sophomore in high school. Parkview Public High School, Stone Mountain, Georgia. And I was in the middle of a window of the worst year of my life, the worst years of my life. Like, just, mm mm-mm. Was it because of a totalitarian regime or no? Or because what was prophesied in this book hadn't come true yet? I I was living under a totalitarian regime (laughs) called the public education system. And the family, the institution of the family, benevolent tyrants. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. the socialism, like. the system of socialism that is navigating girls in high school. I don't know. <laughs> I'm interested in this, but I feel like it's irrelevant. Is it ever irrelevant? No. I'll tell you what I would have been doing if I was watching the Super Bowl on the last day of the year. I would have been watching the 1984 Apple computers, like one off commercial that is the most famous commercial in mm-hmm. television history. I would have been a And I have a feeling I did watch it because I watched the Super Bowl as a kid and I had no concept if either what it was referring to in the past or what was going to like what they were prophesying would and did happen in the future. A, an Orwellian ad. That's a clear illusion. An Orwellian ad. Yeah. yeah. Go, go check it out on not YouTube. Seen, yeah, you got to see it. I think it broadcast Super Bowl 1983. 1983 season, yeah. 1984, 1984, January 22nd, 1984. Do you remember who was in the game? Do you remember who no, won? do you? I, I bet the 49ers were in the game. Well, they did, Heidi, they did play you, in four Heidi, or five Super Bowls in the 80s, but it wasn't one of them. <laughs> oh, really? The Raiders defeated the Redskins. 
Oh. 38 to nine. I had to look that part up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Marcus Allen was the MVP. Okay. Well, we are not here to talk about 1984 sports. We are here to talk about 1984, the book. This, of course, is by George Orwell. It was written not in 1984, but in 1949. It was published in June of 1949. And it was Orwell's ninth and final book that he completed during his lifetime. Are you, um, generally speaking, a big Orwell fan? Heidi, you answer that question first. Uh, I don't know that I would call myself a big Orwell fan, but I find everything that he writes compelling and, I mean, really brilliant, actually. So, yeah, I... But I'm not like a big fan. Like I don't have like a poster. <laughs> you don't have the, the George Orwell. I don't have like dining a big room poster. Watching you poster. <laughs> I probably don't. She doesn't have to the, ch- the Che Guevara poster, but it's Orwell. Right. Exactly. Orwell in yeah. a beret. <laughs> <laughs> With that mustache. Yeah. Tim, what about you? What's your uh, relationship to Orwell? I really, really like him. I've only read three things, Animal Farm, 1984, and The Politics and Essay, The Politics of the English Language. Maybe I read it. No, I think I have read another essay. And um, I love him. It's, it's, isn't it funny, though? I don't know that anybody would say, you know who my favorite author is? George Orwell. <laughs> right. He's my favorite novelist. Yeah. And I don't think it's because of a lack of quality. I think it's because... The things that he is best remembered for are these really incisive, a really incisive use of political commentary through fiction. And that shouldn't disqualify him, but I think that it kind of, it, you kind of move him to a certain part of your mental shelf and say, that's where he belongs. But he can't belong among the favorites. It's hard to have like affection for yeah. his stories, yeah. I feel like. I mean, like, if we're just, if we're kind of differentiating between the idea of affection and um, respect, and I don't uh-huh. mean affection like we 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 have affection for his work, so we try to preserve it or talk about it or care about it. I just mean like it's a rarely is it a heart book to use the mm-hmm. parlance right. that has become so ubiquitous here on the show. Heidi, do you? How many times have you read this book? Like, what's your relationship to this book particular? This is. Only my second time reading 1984. I've read Animal Farm several times because I teach it in my moderns class. Um, She's the shorter one. Wise. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it's just a really, really great um, introduction to allegory, allegorical thinking, yeah. and to political thought and the connection between politics and literature. Like Animal Farm is the book to go to, I think, for that. So I, yeah, I've read Animal Farm many times. I'm really familiar with that one, but this is only my second time reading 1984. Tim, 84? Mm, How many times? Maybe third or fourth time reading it now. I think this is my second time too, and it's been quite a while. Like, I think I read it in college mm-hmm. or around that time. Mm-hmm. So it's been quite a while since I've read it. So a lot of it's pretty fresh or not, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm reading it through fresh eyes, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this is one of those books that is, you know, described. Like if you look at the Wikipedia entry on it, dystopian science fiction novel, I don't think anybody would say, well, this is obviously not dystopian science fiction. Uh, it also calls it a cautionary tale. Uh, and then, Heidi, you mentioned that Animal Farm is sort of a, what did you call it? A, a fable or a... Um, 
it's a political allegory. allegory i think is what i called it yeah do you do you guys view this book as a book that we ought to read as a quote cautionary tale or as a political allegory like is that is that a way that you read this book as well animal farm well because it uses animals makes that pretty obvious you know like it ask it, de- it defines its terms pretty clearly on what it wants us to think about it with 1984 do you think about it the same way like do you do you think about it that do you think about its dystopian nature in an allegorical fashion or do you do you not or do you not <laughs> either one of you whoever has an answer to that right now i don't think about it as an allegory um i I just think about it as a novel. I definitely think about it as a cautionary tale for sure. Do you yeah, I, I agree. I, I, it's definitely a cautionary tale. I think unlike animal farm, which is straight up allegory, this has a couple of allegorical aspects of it. Like yeah. I think the kind of um, what's the name of the TV set that both projects and kind of report the telescreen yeah the telescreen like i could read that as an allegory for um a hyper functioning surveillance state that might look like it, it could look very different you know especially given like the technology of the 21st century um so i think there are a couple of allegorical elements like that. But I think that the story is more like kind of straight up reportage from the Soviet Union in 1949. And so I'm, I am hesitant to call it allegorical. Right. So I don't even know where to go now. <laughs> like there's a lot of different places we could go. You bring up the Soviet Union from 1949. He was a, Orwell himself was a journalist. Um, he wrote a lot about labor, for example. He wrote anti-fascist writings and things like that. And then, of course, like from this book, we have a whole bunch of terms that have become sort of part of the lexicon. We use the, the phrase Orwellian, right, to describe totalitarianism and authoritarian government and things like that. But then you also have Big Brother and Thought Police and Two Minutes Hate and memory holes and news speaks, news speak and thought crimes and all those things that actually are like, we just hear them on the news now. We just hear yeah. them on social media. You know, you know, you're going to see them in the New York times. And these are things that George Orwell coined. And so the work has become such a part of our lives now, even if you don't know the story that it makes it interesting to, to sort of debate and discuss. So I'm curious how you guys think about those sorts of terms. Like, do they lose their punch for you in reading the book because they've kind of been adapted or co-opted into 21st century media, media newspeak? <laughs> um, like they're just sort of things we hear now. So when you're reading them in the book, does their creativity or punch or whatever fall any more like flat for you? Do you think Tim? I think embedded in the story, not at all. I think like ripped out of the story and used in kind of common parlance you're like you're describing. Yeah, they might have lost a little bit of their power, but once inside the narrative, man, those those 
concepts really come alive again. How about for you, Heidi? Yeah, I think I agree with that. Yeah. It's interesting because I was struggling. Like to me, because we hear them on the news, they become cartoonish in the book a little bit. Like I have to oh, really right. work to separate the the usage of the word from like reading a David French art, article in the New York Times or the Atlantic or wherever he is That's now. Like, fair, you know, yeah. <clears throat> reading a whatever. So I have to really like work. It, every time I hear the word, it takes me out of the story. Yeah. Which has been an and interesting what are those experience. words aside from newspeak, David, like in Orwellian. Thought I mean, police, even like big, thing. big brother, yeah. memory holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Big brother's a big one. Yeah. Thought police yeah. is a huge thing that's in yeah. social media and like just in the world of sort of uh, opinion writing right now, especially over the last couple of years. It's been like a huge deal. And, and social media is influencing that a lot. Now, this is a political book inherently. Like, mm-hmm. we can't not, we're going to be inherently talking about politics when we talk about this book. I think we've kind of agreed that what we're not going to do is be like, this is what I, this is who I voted for. <laughs> this is who right. I think this book is describing. Um, we're kind of going to steer clear of like being partisan or anything like that. As far as I know, it's like, have we agreed on that? Yeah. yeah like none, on that. nobody's okay. going to say this is happening in the other party that I, you know, that I, that I didn't vote for. That's what's going right. on with them. But right. my party is purified from that. You know, like nobody's going to talk about that. Right. But because the, the question's right. But, yeah. Right. But you can't not talk. I mean, it's, it's a book that it's like, how are you going to, you can't not talk about horses when you're reading all the pretty horses. I mean, yeah, right. 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 Yeah. So anything but horses, yeah. just talk about yeah. anything but horses. Yeah, exactly. We're going to talk about that love story, but we're not going to talk about those horses, yeah, yeah, even yeah. if they represent the love story. <laughs> yeah. Even if they're riding horseback <laughs> during their romance. Yeah. Um, so when we kind of were discussing a minute ago before we started how, whether or not we see this book playing out in contemporary society. And we probably should just jump right into that. Um, at least kind of get that on the table. So it's not hovering over our conversations. Cause I said, when I'm reading it, I keep seeing examples of modern life. Like I, I, I keep like making lists of things that or marking things as man, this seems like now, Tim, you're like, you were like adamantly like, what? That's crazy. Um, Heidi, what are you, are you in between? I, maybe I want to hear, I, I definitely hear have, but I want to hear, this. yeah, I want to hear the two of you talk about this. So, and I think we were both a little surprised that the other person felt the way we felt. So I don't, Tim, I'm just going to give you the floor. Like you, so I don't know how to even start this because we didn't like plot this out. This was literally right. before we hit record. We were like, no, save this for the show. Right. So, right, right. Um, I'll, I'll just start. I'll just say this. I think we should define our terms here because mm-hmm. I want to I want to clarify what it is that I'm seeing. I'm not saying that when I read this, I see like a one-to-one correlation with the government that we live in or have lived in or like governments in the world today. What I'm um, describing is what I'm seeing is like a sort of psychological, like a drift towards a psychological instinct or mindset that is within these characters that seems to be drifting into the way we live now. I'm not saying there is a big brother per se, (laughs) although I think perhaps there is, although I don't know if it's, I think it's probably more of a relationship between big brother corporation and big brother government and the way they watch us. 
but that's a different conversation that we can potentially get into. So for me, it's not, I'm not making like a political statement so much as a, the way he describes what it's like to live in that world and what's in their minds, like the, the psychological aspects of it, the psychological experience is something that I think we're drifting towards and we're seeing in people's psyche now. So I'm not saying like every event that is happening here is happening in our world, although I think some are. So that that's kind of what I meant by that. Do you still take issue with that? And if so, I, fire away. Uh, I don't know if I take issue with that. I don't. I don't know. The thing that I object, the thing that I have a hard time with is reading this book, which is which is a description of a totalitarian state, and seeing like little anecdotal evidence of, let's say, um, thought crime for an example, and saying, man, sometimes I think things that are really unpopular and I could get in trouble for those things um, at work with my boss, with my coworkers, with my colleagues. Thus, that's an aspect of totalitarianism. There are aspects of our culture that are totalitarian. I'm, I, my counterpoint is no. No. I mean, like, maybe, like, those of, like, vaguely resemble totalitarianism. There is no such thing as political discourse in a totalitarian state. There is no such thing as opposing viewpoints in a totalitarian state. There is no such thing as this podcast in a totalitarian state. Okay, so let me ask you this, though. I'm not saying – so what I'm saying is not – like if I was to say, well, I see things in this book that seem to be showing up in our world. I'm not saying, oh, we live in this kind of world now. Mm-hmm. It would be more like if we continue on the path that we're going, that slippery slope might not be so much of a fallacy in a century. Like we could, like we're seeing seeds of what he describes early on in like 1949 in the book. That's more what I would say. I wouldn't say like the world, what I'm seeing is that we live in that world now. It's more like if we continue on, for example, the surveillance state that we're living in now, you could see in a hundred years, the surveillance state getting worse. Could you not? In the United States? Yeah. Okay. So I I think that um, the surveillance state in China is getting worse, like by the day. No, I like I, I think that's as much as we know about you know what's happening inside of China. There are certain aspects of the surveillance state that are growing and growing very rapidly, no doubt. In the United States, could that happen in fifty years? One hundred percent, absolutely. My counterpoint is like that's a good reason to stay really vigilant because of the sure. dire consequences of sure. living in a totalitarian state. I don't know at what point. At one point, you could not say we're in danger of slipping into a totalitarian state. It's like always a possibility. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. For me, it's like, for example, the way we, the way we have sort of bought hook, hook, line, and sinker into like devices and social media and like all the things that allow us to be tracked and like told who we are. Yeah, that that to me is like you're only a few bad decisions away from beginning the slide down into totalitarianism or allowing it to happen. Like, but then as he says in the book, 
it's the the average people that are the hope, right? The proles are the hope, is what he says yeah. repeatedly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we're all the proles, man. <laughs> I think. I um, jump in. Do you yeah. have any thoughts on this? Because I think we're just kind of trying to figure I, out where we yeah, stand. I think that I agree with Tim. Tim, I agree with you completely that there's <laughs> the fact that we can talk about a totalitarian state within opinion pieces like David brought up at the beginning. These are the kinds of like, this is the kind of language that's being used in opinion pieces, right? The fact that we even have the opportunity to publish and read and discuss opinion pieces in this country means like that unequivocally, unequivocally, we don't live in a totalitarian state. This is your point. And you're exactly right. I think that's a hundred percent true. And so to claim that it is anything approaching what, Stalin did in uh, in in the Soviet Union is an insult to all that those people suffered and endured, um, and and I think that's true. Like I agree with that completely. I, however, I I remember when reading this book for the first time uh, in college, which was not even twenty years ago, way less. Right, right, like. I graduated from college and well, I guess it was, it was 2001. That's when I graduated from college. I remember reading this in college and having, and feeling like this was a thousand, like relating to nothing. Like feeling like true science fiction. Yeah. Like reading it and being like, what would it be like to live in a world like this? This is absolutely beyond the pale of anything I had ever experienced in the public square. Nobody had ever told me what to think, what opinion to have, what, I mean, other than like my parents who might've been a little bit benevolently tyrannical, right? This is how but you that's should parent, go. That's like right? what parents do. Yes. Or like my church youth <laughs> Kind group, of a point. Right? Or like I got teased at school for my political beliefs sometimes, or I got made fun of for being a Christian or whatever, right? Like that's like, but when I read this book, it felt like a thousand light years from anything in the public square. I had, I, I remember thinking, who would ever live under this? Who would mm. ever let any of this in? I remember it just being absolutely floored. And 20 so, years later, I get it. I get it. 20 years later, I look at the public discourse. I look at the increasing ideological pressure to conform to an acceptable cultural narrative uh, that happens economically. It happens in the marketplace. For sure, it's happening in academia. It is happening in spades in academia. It is not yet happening politically. Like it's not, there's no laws telling us what to think and how to act. And if you think and talk this way, then you're going to prison or you're going to lose your job or whatever. Like there's no, there's nothing on the policy level. That's anything approaching big brother. But I think in the hearts and the minds of of the American public square, there is a movement towards this is an acceptable way of thinking and acting. And there's an increasing amount of pressure and an increasing amount of energy uh, within the people, within uh, tastemakers, within the culture to, uh, 
to manipulate language, to manipulate history and narrative in order to get people to think that way. And I do believe that. Can I respond to that? Mm-hmm. I, my response is, hasn't that always been the case? I have never experienced anything like that in 1984 or in, that's what I'm saying. Within well, the last mean- 20 years, things have changed. And I think that's true. I do not think we've always been at the brink of having an acceptable ideological cultural narrative. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't agree okay, with that. But either, but- let, me, let me finish my point. Yeah. I, I picked up um, Will Durant's History of Philosophy recently. And I can't remember what year that book was published, but let's say it was closer to 1950 than, you know, yeah, 2022. I, I think it was like 60, yeah. Okay. Will Durant, who is not a Christian, said he kind of makes the case for Christ and Caesar being kind of like the, the kind of like pinnacle f- types of leaders um, in the ancient world. Dang, 26. What's that? 1926. Okay, 1926. Um, Christ and Caesar, he gives a lot of devotion to that. And I still think that way, like Will Durant thinks that way, you know? I think that way of thinking has fallen out of academic circles. People don't talk that way anymore, like Christ and Caesar. And I, to, maybe to my chagrin, maybe to Heidi's chagrin, maybe to David's chagrin. And so there's a different way of speaking that maybe diminishes the impact of Christendom um, on, you know, its influence in the ancient world. Okay. So that to me is an example of if I'm in an academic conversation, I think twice before saying something like a concept like Christ and Caesar, And so I am out of keeping with what would be considered mainstream academic discourse today. And I can kind of view that as, man, that's evidence of groupthink that is leading to totalitarianism. Or I can think, you know what? I am a minority report now. I'm just in like a minority of like the way that I view like this aspect of history, but that, but that to me is a far cry from we are at the, we are like, we're getting close to a totalitarian regime. But don't you think that there is a totalitarian instinct in the majority? It, don't you think that you could say that there is a totalitarian instinct in any majority that tells the minority that what they think is like the, that, that what they think is not allowed to be aired in the public square. So is that a question about like, just like the nature of any sort of majority? Like, do we think that any sort of majority well, I'm, has I'm kind of a totalitarian it, instinct in them? Is that, yeah, like I'm saying, cause that's what, that is what's happening to some degree. So then is that, an instinct that has always been around going back to your original question, or is it being, has it been heightened? I think it's always been around to some degree, but is it been heightened? The question is, is it, is it kind of getting worse? Right. Because I don't think that like, I wouldn't say for example, that we live in a totalitarian government, but I would say that there could be, you could, there are signs of a totalitarian instinct in the mob, so to speak, or in the, or in the masses. 
Like, I think there's a difference there. Like, I obviously don't think we're living in a totalitarian government in a in the way that most people define it. Although I think every government has a totalitarian instinct to some degree, but that's another conversation. So to me, like, oh, we have to make a distinction here for the sake of this conversation between what's happening at like the governmental level, the policy level, as right. Heidi said, and right. like what's happening within uh, hearts, minds, and conversations of people who on one side are in the majority and on one side are in the minority. And I think that where I'm saying is there's a totalitarian instinct that shows up in those hearts, minds, and conversations that is reminiscent of what I'm seeing in this book. Not that the government is reminiscent of what we're seeing in this book. Although at any point with enough power and enough time, I can see any government, as you said earlier, sliding into the right. kinds of things we see here. Right. You just got to have the right bad person, <laughs> you know, who is yeah. smart. Yeah, we need a really sophisticated narcissist, narcissistic megalomaniac who really wants that outcome. I think that's what we really would need to at least like open the gates to a real headlong push toward totalitarianism. Although you also do need this, the, the conditions like in Germany and Russia. Like you need a certain yeah. set of conditions for it to really take hold. Go on. Yeah. I just wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of those conditions um, is it, I mean, like, okay, to go back to 1984, I think part of the reason this book is so powerful is that the recipe for totalitarian rule is really built in, right? Like Big Brother is constantly talking about the war. Where is the war? It's kind of always on the horizon. It's never yeah. really, you know, like we can, we see it through propaganda in the book, but having that enemy yeah. is so crucial to preserving the state because yeah. without the prospect of this like enemy running roughshod over us, we don't cling to the loving, embracing arms of Big Brother, our paternalistic yeah. benefactor and our ruler. You know, it's so, I mean, I think this book is so, so smart about the way that our main character, Winston, loves and hates Big Brother. And it's easy to forget about how much he loves Big Brother. You know, like Big Brother is providing for him and Big Brother is his protector. And he is serving, he doesn't really have much choice, I'll agree, but he gets great joy out of the work that he does on behalf of Big Brother. And there's something about, um, he, he needs Big Brother as much as he hates him. And I think that's part of the reason why this book is so, so powerful. Shall I go on? Heidi, <laughs> go ahead. Joe, I thought you were going to say something, Heidi. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did. The reason I'm hesitating, our listeners will be like, what's going on? Is because I had something to say, but then I feel like the conversation kind of took took a turn back into the book, which probably is where it needs to be. And so I'm trying to decide. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, no, 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 Heidi. <laughs> yeah. I like grabbed the mic for 20 minutes on my like totalitarian rant like let's we don't need to we're gonna spend four weeks in this book say what you're well, gonna say the book is so good and i just there's i just love i love what you just said the ambivalence towards big brother is it's it's so psychologically compelling within the novel and that and the reason that it is is because it's it is psychologically true to every human soul, right? We both mm. want to kiss and bite the hand that feeds us. And yeah. we want, and we also have this like very deep need to trust 
authority. And I'm Gen X, Tim, you're Gen X. Like we were definitely raised in like the Nirvana generation, right? Like you can't trust anybody. You can only trust yourself, like um, your opinions. And, and I think that's why, to your point that you made earlier, I have also been so formed within a cultural narrative that a new cultural narrative to every generation is a threat to the last one, right? And mm. we, you're, the Gen X is kind of coming out of being the most powerful young generation in America. And we're handing it off to, you know, David. Um, and as the, and the millennials are kind of coming up and, and they're like owning their power, right? And soon, soon that then, the cultural narrative will soon move away from, from that as well. And so mm -hmm. I was raised so much within the, like swimming in the air of, of a mistrust of authority and a resistance to the government and uh, this sense of like, you can't trust anybody. And that like anxiety of influence was very, very profoundly formative to Gen X. And so I think in some ways, any kind of like big brother type of figure is going to be met with resistance from our particular generation, whether or not it's totalitarian or just different. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so to call everything totalitarian that we disagree with or that overreaches power is not true. It is not true that everything that overreaches power is totalitarianism. And it's also not true that every cultural instinct that disagrees with the faith is totalitarian. That's right. not true either. Right. And so distinguishing between those, the, those things is really important. But I do think that in looking at this novel, there are some things about the idea of conformity to groupthink that is compellingly accurate in today's world. And I will, I will grant that. I mean, if I worry about something, I mean, this is my amateur like sociologist opinion, but it does seem like we don't, for all the talk of critical thinking, you know, that critical thinking is so important supposedly to our educational system. I mean, I think it's in the very like stated goals of the public education, public education system. And I don't mean to just like highlight, like if you went to public school, you know, like you're going to be guilty of groupthink. I don't mean to say that because I think this is like a danger everywhere, but it really does seem like choosing a side whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, there is, it is not a, a critical voice among your own tribe is not, it just seems really unwelcome, but maybe that has always been the case. When has it been popular for one person to stand up among their people and say, no, I disagree. I don't, can't think of a time that it was like, oh yeah, that's a cool guy that's doing that. Let's, you know, let's listen to what he has to say. No, I think there's something about the kind of like, protective herd instinct that makes us feel really comfortable when we are sharing the opinions of those who are around us. And when someone stands up and points the finger at us, that person is never welcomed. That person is never embraced. But don't but you it, think it's, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead, David. I was just going to say, don't you think it's true though, that how we respond to that distaste has varied from people to people and 
culture to culture. Yeah. And I worry about that. I worry, but like, are we kind of like sliding towards something where we're a lit, we're even less tolerant of that single prophetic figure than we were 50 or a hundred years ago? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I do wonder yeah. that. So are, you guys are talking about this, like you both really love this book or have a mm -hmm. lot, like I think it's really great. Um, I want to talk about something related directly to the form of the book because in a way while i respect this book i have a hard time with it so i'll be the voice of the, the people who are like eh, do we really have to do this on close reads not because i don't think we shouldn't have done this on close reads but because when i read it tim you mentioned earlier how he was like it's got this like reportage vibe mm -hmm. to it mm -hmm. and when i read it it reads to me like reportage. Mm. It reads to me like I'm reading more of like Orwell's nonfiction on politics and culture. And I have a hard time um, entering into it because of that. And like, I'm half the time I'm like, so where's the story? So like what's in the first part, like the, 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 I kept being like, so what's happened? There's mm. a lot of really compelling writing, a lot of really interesting ideas, a lot of interesting images, you know, a lot of great lines. And I've underlined a ton, you know, I'm, I'm really marking it up. Like if I was reading one of the philosophers or political theorists that I find to be the most interesting, I'm, I'm marking things like <laughs> question marks. I'm marking things with exclamation, you know, all the stuff that you do when you find the book really compelling. So it's not that I don't find it compelling. Right. It's just that reading it for something like close reads, really getting into it and like, embracing the story, the, the novelistic aspect of it, and this is a show that does novels, has been a challenge for me. So, like, Heidi, as, a, as from the perspective of this book as a novel, how do you enter into it? Like, I, we always talk about how we have to let books be what they are. That's, mm -hmm. that's, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying how we do that has been kind of a challenge for me this time around. Again, not that I don't like it, not that I think that we shouldn't be reading it or discussing it or whatever. It's just you know, getting into it and really kind of sinking in has been more of a challenge than with some books for me. Right. Even like As I Lay Dying with the myriad POVs. Well, there's a lot happening in As I Lay Dying. And I think that in part one of 1984, we, I think the risk that Orwell took in writing this book is that the thing he had to do in part one is the thing that's going to be off-putting to the to the average reader, which is give us as readers an experience of what it of of being on the inside of a person who is utterly detached from meaningful action and interaction for us to have any kind of true uh uh for us to be able to like enter into to Winston's life, we have to see him as a frustrated person in the true sense of the word frustrated, like having all of this um, internal energy, having this capacity and nowhere to put it and a life that absolutely shuts him off from any, uh, any way of, of, of channeling his inner life into the outside world. Like he has no action to take and no people to love. And, um, and he's not yet stirred to a spirit of rebellion. Um, although he has all the instincts there. Right. And so 
what Orwell needed to do in this first part of the novel is to immerse us in such a world and in such a person. And in so doing, that means we have to be bored like he is bored. And we have to hit all of the walls that he has to hit, right? That he hits on a daily basis, which is, I don't like anybody. There's nobody to like, nobody who likes me. There's no action to take. There's no individuality. Um, I can't have any hobbies. I can't think about anything. I don't have the language to. My language is being stripped away. So I'm repetitive in my thoughts, right? I have no meaningful memories because everybody I love has been taken from me, you know? And so he has to give us, he has to immerse us in the world that Winston lives in and the internal world of Winston himself, which means we have to know what it feels like to be Winston, which means we have to be bored. We have to be frustrated and we have to be repetitive and thinking about the same things over and over again with nowhere to put that. Tim, what were you saying? David, you, you, you got to smile, David. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Did, okay. did something funny happen in your recording studio that we weren't aware of? Well, I don't My dog just walked across. The kids let the dog out and the dog walked across the window, but all I could see was your tail going. So maybe that's what it was. I don't, oh, I don't, okay. I don't know. Okay. Whatever came across my face was probably like Uh-oh. subconscious, but I also. Face crime. There were, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about how funny it is that like the thing is called Facebook and like they didn't like. I don't know, face crime, Facebook, like they should have done a little research there. But anyway, um, uh, there, I mean, I don't know that I was bored because the ideas are compelling. I was, but like, I was a little bored. I was reading, I was like, how yeah, long think, is this section? And what is, will anything happen? Like I'm in the same boat and I'm realizing I'm supposed to be feeling that way because in order for the reader to care what happens, we have to feel what Winston feels. But that's a big risk on mm. Orwell's part because- it's, I was bored reading this part. I, same as you, great writing, great character development, lots of important background, lots of information that we need to know in order to, to care about what happens next. But man, it just took a long, it took a hundred pages of him doing nothing but take a walk and write some like really, really hard, like boring, sordid things. I was really intrigued by these hundred pages. Now I'm like, maybe I should have been bored. But I no. the fact that he is afraid to write in a diary, I mean, that made me I was looking over my shoulder on every page is some squadron of goons sent from Big Brother going to pound him, you know, in this dark alley. Like I think I really bought into the how ubiquitous the surveillance is. And so I kind of yeah. just felt tense the whole time. Like, don't don't buy that artifact from the bookstore. Don't. It'll be your last move. You know, I, I really felt that. No, and I was like, buy 50 of them. Buy all the paperweights. <laughs> You're like, get a bottle of wine and take it home. <laughs> I'm going to well, go to the Ministry of Love true. anyway. Might as well do it with a bottle of wine book in my hand. (laughs) Hold up. The Ministry of Love. It's perfect. What a great. It's perfect. What a great name. Yeah. So far, that's my favorite part of the book because I think a lot of the the contemplation on 
language, like the reflections on the power of language. I think a lot of that was lost on me as a college student. Um, I didn't have the love for language and words and, and, and the connection between thought and language that I do now. I think so much of that was lost mm-hmm. on me that in the reading yeah. this, like I, I just, like that was the most um, compelling part. And that like, that like stirs me to action, right? Like I read it and mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, we need to be writing. We need to be reading. We need to be talking. We need, like, we need to have these conversations. We need to read all the opinion Books pieces. Matter. Like language matters. Like we need to remember and, um, and we need to like speak precisely and accurately and volubly. And, and that, like, I think that that, a lot of that, I caught it as a college student, but it was a bit lost on me, the tragedy of that and how he talks in the book about like the complex emotions and how there are no more tragedies anymore because everybody's so simple and blank and empty. And so there's no such thing as like a tragic story Mm. because that requires complex depth of soul to experience tragedy like that. All of that was like, so compelling to me. And, and that's the kind of thing that stirs me to action. That's like, get to the antique store and buy all the paperweights. So. One of the things that was compelling to me was just thinking about the fact that he decided to set this in 84 Mm. because, you know, he could have set it in like 2066 or 2420 or something, you know, something that's truly way out in the future, but he said it in something that like he could have lived in 1984. And so he was clearly trying to say that there was, you know, in doing that, that, that he had concerns about the world that he was seeing, like, and the possibility of sliding into it. Uh, and so then we brought up the cautionary tale stuff. So I think that all the stuff that you're describing kind of regardless of what political, like you could live in France, you could live in Rio de Janeiro and, or live in Atlanta and, see the cautionary tale aspect of it, regardless of the political system that you live in, you know, and the, the fact that he crosses like sci-fi with, with the, the near future made the things that you guys are talking about pretty compelling. Like, you know, he's saying, watch out and watch out readers in 1984. Someone could be looking over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was most compelling for me about that was just that the idea of all that surveillance, like that's the one area where, it makes me really nervous about the world we we live in right now because yes. like, you know, they're watching us and listening to things that we're like, even if they're not, it's not an individual person, they're data mining, like the things we talk about to sell us stuff. Right. And that's in its own way, its own like bleak thing that you have that we need to like resist as human beings. But then you get the thing that began to make the story really compelling to me and kind of pull me out of feeling like it was a political book of political theory is when he starts talking about like regular people, like the hope is in people who aren't part of the party, the people who are drinking in the bars and the people who are the the only people who like have any sense of what the memory is. And so at the end of part one, when he starts talking to people and saying, do you remember any of this? Do you remember any of this? And like, he had just been talking about how there's no tragedy. And then he's beginning to realize the fact that these people who lived through pre-revolution can't remember any of it. And he's beginning to sense that that's a tragedy. You know, the tragedy is in the lack of, is in the forgetting. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where, you know, so much of the cautionary tale part for me comes to the surface because, you know, memory is, Mm -hmm. is it 
Wendell Berry talks about this all the time. You have to maintain affection for something to remember it. And memory is what, and preservation comes through memory, which comes through affection. And you, you see that here, like the, the, the way the, um, the antique dealer, he has this affection for these little things. And like when you, when you can convince someone that what they love doesn't matter and that they shouldn't love it anymore, that's when they, you can convince someone to forget it. And that's, that's to me where the story began to be at the end of this part, when you introduce those characters, that's when it starts to become a little bit more of a story and less of a treatise, if that makes sense. And, and again, Tim, you said it was compelling. I did find it compelling. It was just hard for me to get into like the book as a narrative, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if I, that was probably not clear when I said that earlier. Can I, I kind of want to go back to the earlier part of the conversation. Part of the reason that I bridle at the idea that we're like living in a totalitarian state is think about the, how do I say this? I think if we are too worried about living in a totalitarian state, we kind of miss the things that I think are even more pressing and harmful about the culture that we live in because we're pointing at the possibility, we're pointing at a phantasm that's always going to be on the horizon, always. So because we are so concerned with someone taking our freedoms away, because none of us want that, because so much of our life is contingent upon the tremendous amount of freedom that we have, the anti-freedom that's kind of always on the horizon in the form of totalitarianism makes us turn our eyes toward that horizon in like powerful fear. I think the thing that I am more worried about, and I think this is better, this is kind of articulated in Brave New World, and maybe even Wendell Berry is someone who articulates this well, is that I think the biggest danger that we have is like a glut of everything. It's a glut of everything. And so in a glut of everything, the meaningfulness of words, of relationships, of our spiritual practices and beliefs are actually kind of becoming more and more and more muted and we don't even really know it. So just one example. In other words, like we're getting high on the hog and so then you get lazy? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're getting. Is that like I, an overly simplistic way of putting what you're saying? Yeah. I, I'll, I'll just, yeah. For now, I'll just say, yeah, that's right. In kind of like we have become so acquisitive that we are kind of like spreading the goods of our life out over a piece of toast until the goods have lost their taste because the goods have become so thin and paltry like the real goods, the real goods of life, the inner goods of life, those things are becoming sacrificed, I think, on the kind of altar of our abundance. It's like the C.S. Lewis line, right? Where you, what's the line where he says, you know, we've lost sight of higher things because we have, you know, the... Like an abundance of lower things. Yeah, what's the what's the beach? I, I'm drawing a blank. Heidi, do you know what it is? The famous the higher cannot vacation on the, the beach. Oh yes, yep. That we are we're content with mud pies in the slum. With, yeah. When mm. in uh, when a holiday at sea is offered to us, we are far too easily pleased. Mm. 
Yeah, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. I think if that, I'm more concerned with that than I am about what I'm calling the phantasm of totalitarianism. You know, I don't want to say like that we're never going to be in danger of totalitarianism. Of course we are. Of course we are. But I just think it's sort of like, um, it's a really nice distraction of worry to take us away from something that I think is probably more pressing, which is a profound overabundance. Don't hear me saying that like, I want to go back to kind of like, th- that I don't consider it a great privilege and so satisfying to have all of the kind of like plentiful things at my fingertips. No, I use it every day. But I think like building in internal constraints to not make one's life about acquisitiveness is a pressing issue. That's a more pressing issue for me than is totalitarianism, even though totalitarianism is a much more clearly defined monster. So I want to comment on that because I agree with you. And I think that, don't you, don't you think that underlying Orwell's kind of alarmism is that though, Tim, that what, if you're, if you're going to draw a moral from the story, although I don't love looking for morals, but Orwell's a moralist, like there's not, I don't know that there's a, a way around that. Um, he's he's waving a red flag to the West, specifically the West, mm-hmm. at a time when uh, there was there were totalitarian regimes, whether fascist or communist, all o- over, around the globe. And he's over there, this low, you know, this figure waving a flag, We're like look at this. Mm-hmm. And 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 if we aren't in danger of being overtaken by a totalitarian regime and losing our opportunity to you know, to live in freedom. If that's not the threat, what might be the threat then that he's, that he's pointing to in this book? And I think it is forgetting. I think it's forgetfulness, the sin of forgetfulness. I think even in reading this section, as I'm looking at it, he's saying, don't stop reading the books. Don't stop writing. Don't stop eating good food. Don't stop having conversations with people you actually like. Don't stop pursuing women that you that you are attracted to, right? Don't like he's saying like remember what it means to be human. These are the things it takes to be human. A totalitarian state will strip you of these things and try to make you a cog in the machine. So then what can we take in the west and in the overabundance of the west whether we're in danger of the totalitarian regime or not? It's almost beside the point, right? Because if that's going to happen, it's going to happen. And, and, and we're going to left to be holding the bag of being human. That's what happens to the little guy in, in any kind of state, whether it's overabundance or, or, or neglect and lack. The thing is, is what do we do about the fact that we're human when big brother is watching us? Right. And, and what Orwell seems to be saying is like, eat good food, read good books, write, remember who you are, remember your family, stay connected. Right. And that, like that was coming through loud and clear to me. Um, and, and the story, it's because of the lack of it, but in my life, I can do those things. Right. And I don't want to get to your point. What I hear you saying is don't get lost in ideology one way or the other. 
which I think is exactly Orwell's point. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Ideology is no, is not a way to be human, right? And the way to be human is to do human things like falling in love and taking a walk and buying a beautiful antique and, and making something delicious to eat and sitting and writing about your memories and, and all, and all of that. And, and I think that that's, you know, those really human things are what I'm always drawn back to in the midst of this like kind of public frenzy that we're in, no matter where it's leading. And, and I, those things that you just described are precisely the things that Winston does not have. He does not right. have, I mean, like the fact that his attraction for this woman that he works near is fraught with peril, absolute peril. Um, the fact that going in and having, you know, a beer with the proles is fraught with peril. There is this kind of reminder. These are the things that like, these are like the extreme joys of just a quote, ordinary life. I do want to also say, I think this book is an absolute clarion call at the time of its writing against like it is a clarion call for the West to keep its guard up. And I mean, the United States is fighting its first proxy war with Korea at this time, you know, under the Truman administration, if I've got my dates correct, like the conflict between the West and the totalitarian, totalitarian Soviet Union is coming to a real point right now. And I think that Orwell is very, very, very concerned about that. Well, we've been going for over an hour. Should we wrap it up there? Do you want to say what you're kind of looking for or any other final comments before we go? Tim, do you want to add something? I, this was just my closing thought. As I was reading this book, I thought, oh, this is kind of the cave theory from Plato. But at the end of the cave theory, the individual who has left the cave, left the unreality of the cave, and steps out into kind of like the bright light of the forms that is a moment of transcendence in Plato's cave theory. As Winston leaves the cave in 1984, I think he's going to experience something terribly different. But I do think it's kind of, in a way, a retelling of the cave theory. It might be something to explore in, in future shows. Brush up, brush up on your uh, brush up your on your cave theory on your Plato and, Republic. and get ready for a, a Tim a Tim lesson. <laughs> a Tim lesson. A Tim veal. A Tim. We got to come up with something. Uh, a Tim reveal. A Tim. A Tim vignette. <laughs> a Tim yet. <laughs> Tim yet. Heidi, any final thoughts from you? Yes. So I've. I've for our listeners who've been listening for a long time, you remember that I had like extreme anxiety about final thoughts when I first started on the show and you would always ask for my final thought. And I had like a list of things just in case I ran out of thoughts. So like that never happens anymore. I have so many thoughts. There's an endless amount of thoughts. Um, so I'm just going to pick one. Um, that the conversation. Well, that's all the time we have. So <laughs> Okay. No, 
I'm sad. I'm just kidding. Um, so the conversation he has with the old man in the bar was so moving to me. Um, mm. I reread it a couple of times um, because like I said about earlier about like we grow up in, in like kind of swimming in the air of our, of our cultural narrative. And I'm seeing that more and more being a mother and seeing my children as adolescents swimming in the air of this culture and not knowing how it's even forming them because they just think that's reality. Right. And, and me kind of speaking out of the void being like, that's not reality. <laughs> like, and remembering my parents doing that for me. Um, and me not believing them because you don't believe until you're, until you come out of the cave. But anyway, um, that I was seeing that in Winston in this conversation he has with the man at the bar, because it was such, just so brilliantly written. I just wanted to shake Orwell's hand as I was reading it, like that he's asking the man these, these questions and he's asking them pretty much new speak, generalized ideological questions, right? Was life better before the revolution than it is now? That's that's an ideological question. That's not a human question. And so in his attempt to connect somehow with this man, he can't do it because he's so limited by Newspeak, right? And so limited by being a party member, even though he's trying to break out of it, he's still in the cave. And and this man is telling him these stories and Winston isn't getting it at all, right? The man is telling him stories. The man is having a human moment with him. And yeah. I get that it's annoying. I get that because he wants an answer to his ideological question. But the answer is, this is a human man with real memories. That's the answer. That's the answer to his question, talk to people and listen to them and hear their stories. This isn't a man who's a representative of the proles. He's a real person with real memories that's trying to talk to you about that. And, and so he's, even in asking the question, he's getting the answer and not getting the answer, right? He's not, he can't break through that because he's not yet ready for any kind of meaningful human interaction, even in his longing for it. And, and that as just this objective correlative for what it means to be a person raised in an atmosphere of groupthink, that you can't even hear somebody's story. Um, mm. And I don't blame Winston for that, right? But it was just so moving to me and reading it. I just wanted to be like, stop asking the same question and actually listen to the man. <laughs> and then I wanted to tell the man, don't you get that this person isn't able to hear your individual story yet? Like talk to, you know, mm. like just the, the breakdown of communication, which is what the whole book is about as, and that, that, that little moment was so indicative of it. Um, so that's, that's my final thought. Well, Tim, I'm glad I didn't shut her down. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was useful, helpful. Go buy a paperweight and eat a peach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eat a peach. That's right. Okay. Well, next week we will dig into part two and I think, is it part three that we'll do in a well, part two, I think we're doing, and anyway, we're going to do I think part the of first part half two. of part the first, two, right? Yeah, the first eight mm -hmm. chapters, because then the, chapter nine is really long. So I think it's the first eight chapters of uh, part two. Uh, so we'll dig even deeper. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a little more politics, talk more, more of the book's action as that kind of evolves. Um, Tim, at any point, feel free to tell us how Wedding Plane is going. We are trying to lock down... Um, the spot for our rehearsal dinner. And I will feel so good when we do that. 
That's like one of the major things that I want to knock out. This is like boring, but it's exciting to me. This is very exciting. People want to know the update because see what you've done is you've presented a problem. And then next week you can come back and give us an update on that problem. Okay. Yeah. That's right. We We basically kind of whittled it down to two spots and we're hoping that one of those two spots is going to work, that it's going to be within our budget. And I will report back next week. And just to clarify, both of them do have a dress code of cowboy boots and belt buckles, right? Yes. Okay. And I just wanted to the ability sure. to live stream the event, which I think- Because I'm not bit... coming if it's not a belt buckle uh, <laughs> cowboy boot wedding. Have you guys Definitely seen House of be. Gucci yet? Have you seen that movie yet? No. Not yet, but it's on my we list. Just, we just watched it last week and a belt buckle figures prominently in the opening and closing scene. So I'm just picturing- you know, David was a big Gucci belt at the. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. All right. This has been fun as always. Um, we'll be back. Uh, don't forget that you can go over to substack.com slash close reads. Uh, and uh, actually, it's close reads.substack.com. And you can get access to lots of bonus content written and recorded. Uh, and you can support the show as well that way. Um, up next, after uh, 84, we're going to do one episode on A Raisin in the Sun, and then we're going to be diving into Test the Durbervilles with uh, Karen Swallow Pryor. So that's going to be another uh, great. Cheery read. Yeah. And during that time, Tim's going to be, you know, getting married and all that kind of stuff. So blah, lots blah, going blah. on. Blah, um, blah, blah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just wanted to say thanks to everyone who uh, has been supporting the show and joining the conversation and leaving good, nice reviews, all those sorts of things. Uh, you know, just want to say thanks. So, with that, for Sam McIntosh, for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.